in television crime dramas and there's a lot of them on TV right now and in movies the the arrest scene is often the kind of the climax of the story it's the it's often the most dramatic part of the episode it's it looks like the alleged criminal is going to get away with murder and and there's just not enough evidence to bring them in with all their investigative work but 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 after all that tedious work that the detectives have been doing and been trying to 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 get to the bottom and bring charges against this person that they're convinced is is guilty finally there's a breakthrough in the case and an eyewitness comes forward and so after getting a statement from the witness the detective says to some of the other officers all right let's bring them in and so then the scene is SWAT team or something showing up with this overwhelming force, kicking down the door, bringing the criminal out in handcuffs, kicking and screaming. And then you have roll the theme song for whatever the show it is. I think Law and Order when I think of, I'm not going to hum it, but you can, if you watch it, you know it. Um, this morning we're looking at, a, at an arrest scene, but it's very different from a Law and Order kind of scene. This is not a guilty man. These are not good and just police, policemen and detectives. This isn't a ju- the judicial system at its finest. This, there, there's no need for any kind of element of surprise when they go to, to pick Jesus up. There's no resistance from our Lord. He's not kicking and screaming. The scene is Jesus entering into the crucible of his final sufferings. And, and, and so his, his hour is at hand. That hour that he's been saying, it's not yet, it's not yet. Now it is. It's his hour. His time has come. It, it, the, it, he begins to drink the cup that we're going to see today. And so we talked it, last week. This is that, that, that last major movement in the Gospel of John. We've, we're, we're entering into this last major section in this book of, of Jesus' passion, his sufferings, and ultimately his success through his resurrection. But with the scene change from that upper room as Jesus is in this warm, intimate setting with His disciples and, and, and teaching them and praying to the Father for them and it's this, this intimacy with His, with his closest friends. Now, the, with the scene change, the stage is set and it's dark and it's ominous for this, for this final act and this great drama of redemption. And, and, and yet against this backdrop of intense suffering and, and agony and pain and distress and, and evil, what we get to see is the glories of Jesus Christ shine brilliantly. We see Him in all of His, his wonder. There are, there are two dominant figures that really capture our attention in this part of the Gospel of John. One is Christ Himself, and he is, He's the centerpiece. That's who our eyes need to be really drawn to and fixed, uh, fixed on. But then the other, the other one we see is, is humanity. Kind of the foil here. That, that we see the self-sacrifice of Jesus over and against that, that fight for self-preservation among mankind. We see the humility of Jesus versus the arrogance of man. We see the love of Jesus versus the hatred of humanity. We see the loyalty of Jesus versus the betrayal and abandonment of men. We see the strength of Jesus versus the pathetic weakness of mankind. We see the obedience of Jesus versus the rebellion of men. And so in a sense, we look at this scene and you, and you could say, man, this represents man at his best, at his finest. 
Here, here's man surprising uh, and catching God off guard and, and capturing the Lord and resting Him, putting Him in handcuffs as it were. Wow, way to go man. But this is really, as we know, man at his worst. Humanity at its lowest. And in contrast, we see Christ, who from a human perspective, again, this, this looks like Christ at His lowest point. This is, this, is so, this is so awful, so disheartening, so pathetic, we could say, in human terms. But really, this is Jesus at His best. And, and through eyes of faith, we as believers, we, we see this scene and we're left embarrassed by mankind, but just completely enamored with Christ. I hope we are. Embarrassed at how ignorant and sinful and blind and hardened and wicked man is while being confident and arrogant and proud all the while. And we're, 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 we come across looking pretty pathetic here. But, but as we see Christ in His, in His lowliness, His glories shine brightly. We really see Him here. And He's everything that we're not. And He's everything that we need. That's what we see here. If, if true character is really shown in times of crisis, that old analogy of, of the heat and drawing out whatever's inside the, uh, the tea bag so that, so that it permeates it, if that's, what, if that's the case, then we, then we really get to see Jesus clearly here and in the weeks to come in the sufferings of Christ. The, this morning we're going to focus simply on four qualities of Jesus that really come to the surface and shine brightly in this text. We could, we could number many more, but I'm just going to focus on four four dominant ones here. The first one is this. First thing we see about Christ is His stunning courage. His stunning courage. Jesus did not run. He didn't run. The most impressive show of force here and of courage here is not what the, in this context, it's not what the mob does with Jesus. We don't say, wow, that's impressive. You know, the most stunning display of courage is what Jesus does not do for Himself. And instead, what He does for us. Here's, here's the scene. It's, it's, it's dark and it's scary. We could dim the light. No, not, not literally. I can't, we don't have much light anyway in here. So, so, uh, but, but it's a dark. The arrest of Jesus took place in the middle of the night, probably around midnight. And, and, and so it's late Thursday night after Jesus' time with the eleven in that upper room where He taught, taught, taught them and prayed for them to the Father. They make their way outside of the city to the east and, and cross over the Kidron Brook or the Kidron Valley. So, so this valley went down about 200 feet below the eastern wall of the old city of Jerusalem. And there was this, this brook and this small valley there separating the city proper uh, from the Mount of Olives. And so that's, that's the scene. So don't picture in your mind when you talk about this brook, some, some flowing, babbling uh, creek or brook or something like that. This, is a, this was as a wadi, you could call it a dry gulch. In West Texas we call it a draw. Uh, so, so it's something that's normally dry. In the hot season this would have never had water in it. And only in the, in the winter season it would only have water if there was some heavy rainfall. And it would, it would fill up and be some kind of torrential flood and then it would dry back out. So, so this is, the, this is this, the crossover. So across this valley and this brook, below the eastern side of the city of Jerusalem, there's this garden. And we, John doesn't tell us the name, but other, other gospel accounts tell us the name. The garden was Gethsemane. 
it, it literally means just oil press. And so it sat toward the bottom of the Mount of Olives on that uh, just across the, the, the brook had drawn from the city and, and it was in the middle of this little olive tree grove. And there was this little walled garden that had this olive press sitting in there that they could squeeze the juices from, the, from those olives and, and squeeze the oil from the, from the olives. And so the, the other gospel writers, again, we said this at the beginning, that's why we read in Luke 22, the other gospel writers record for us something that John does not. And, and it's in that garden of the oil press that Jesus, uh, just before this arrest scene, that his own soul is, as it were, squeezed. And that's what we read in Luke 22. Our Lord was in agony in this garden. His knees were buckled in distress. His, his, his sweating blood, Luke tells us, because of the extreme anguish of his soul. And so he's physically just coming apart at the seams. His, uh, Matthew tells us that he was sorrowful and troubled to the point of death. That's not metaphorical language. He was, a, he was about to just physically come undone right there. And the Lord had to send an angel to, to minister to Jesus just to keep him alive. Because Jesus would die on a cross. He wasn't, wasn't to die in the garden. And so this angel comes and physically ministers to Christ just to keep his body together. It's the grief and the anguish of his soul is that intense. And so what, what, why is the question we ask. What was it? We've never seen our Lord like this before. What was it that shook him to the very core of his being like this? Well, it was the reality of the cup. Sounds kind of innocuous. But the, the cup that he was about to drink, which wasn't, we think cup, we think, ah, oh, refreshing cold drink on a hot day. It wasn't a cup of refreshment. It was a cup of wrath. And it, it, it wasn't, as we, as we see Jesus anticipating this cup, it's not, it's not the physical sufferings that he would endure that really rattled him. It wasn't the horrific beatings and the, and the crown of thorns and the vicious insults and the, and the nails in his hands and feet. Even, his own, even that final moment of death and the, the process of dying. I mean, that, certainly that was sobering, but that wasn't what really rattled Christ. What broke Jesus' spirit in that garden was why he would have to endure those sufferings. It was, it was the, the crushing weight of what it meant to be a sin-bearing, wrath-absorbing sacrifice. That's what, that's what came into Jesus' view in that garden. It was, it was, the, it was what would really take place in a, in a focused way between the physical sufferings and the moment he breathed his last breath. And it was that, it was the anticipation of those three hours when darkness would cover the earth and, 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 and it would hide from human eyes the outpouring of God's white hot indignation and wrath against all of our sin. And it was absorbed into Christ on the cross. And he would say, Father, why have you forsaken me? It was that, it was that moment, that Time that Jesus sees and he's just, it troubles him. And so this cup is set before Jesus in the garden and as John says, it's the, it's the Father's cup. It's, it's the Father's will for the Son to drink the cup. And so Jesus is, is both perfectly obedient and yet mysteriously in agony over what he's about to do. That's, and so, so then though we see Jesus gets up he wakes his sleeping disciples. He brings the cup to his lips. 
And he walks right towards Judas and the mob who's with him, coming to arrest him. And he begins to drink. So that's, that's the background to the scene that we're going to begin now looking at in, in John chapter 18. John, John assumes the reader knows this. And he tells us at the end, hey, there's a lot of things I could have told you, but I didn't. Other guys have written about these things, so I'm telling you these things. And, and so he's, he's limiting what he's saying, but he simply says in verse 1, there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So he again assumes we understand that background of Gethsemane. Then in verse 2, now Judas who betrayed him also knew the place, for, Judas, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now every time we see the name Judas mentioned, we should just shudder a little bit. It should shock us. I know, we, we know, we associate Judas with betrayal and we don't name our kids Judas for this reason. And, and, and so, so, so we have these bad connotations. But again, you think and put yourself in the shoes of the disciples. This, they just learned that night that this man that they spent three years with and they thought was his close friend and, and close follower of our Lord was going to betray Jesus that night. So they, this is still just, their minds are still spinning, trying to, trying to compute this. And so Judas, so, so, so you have Judas who had this, this incredibly privileged position to be one of Jesus' inner circle. He sat in this garden with Jesus time and time again as Jesus made the Father's name known to those disciples. He just sat there and watched the Lord and heard Him teach and saw the miracles. He, he had all of this Privilege, but his eyes were never open to what Paul called the light of the glory of the uh, light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He couldn't see it. He didn't see Jesus' glory. His vision was darkened by sinful money, love, and greed. The last time John mentions Judas is in verse five, and it says Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Well, prepositional phrase there. He's standing with the enemies of Jesus. Or we could say he's standing against Christ. I, 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 I'm sure he thought he was safer with them. I'm sure he thought it was more profitable to be with them, with the soldiers, than with Jesus. But his own soul was in great danger. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? And so... So he was with them. So, but, but this is what John is saying. Judas knew where to find Jesus. This is where Jesus always went with his disciples in this setting. So verse 3. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas, if he knew anything about Jesus, he knew that Jesus had power. He didn't believe he was a son of God, clearly. He, he, didn't, he really hadn't put his faith in Christ as, the, as his Savior and as, as Messiah. But he saw Jesus do amazing things. He saw Jesus uh, calm raging seas. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw Jesus cast out demons. He saw him heal the sick and, and make the lame walk and make the blind see. He saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. Judas, if Judas knows anything, he sees, wow, this is a powerful man. So if you're going to, so as he conspires with these Jewish authorities to, to arrest Jesus at the Passover, he says, we, gotta, we better bring an army. We, we, we better come with a, 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 an incredible force to, to be able to take Jesus. Because we don't know, you don't understand what he's capable of. 
And so they, they get all, they get this army. The, the, the language here is technically, it says a band of, of, of soldiers, of these Roman soldiers. That's a technical term. It, it's a detachment. And we know from, from history, Roman history, that a detachment numbered 1,000 men on paper. It was 760 foot soldiers, 240 cavalry. And so, now it was not uncommon for it not to be a complete unit at one time, but that was on paper what a detachment was. But but there would likely have been, most agree, several hundred, perhaps 600 plus Roman soldiers in this band that comes to arrest Jesus. So don't don't picture what you may have seen on on, in movies or or depictions of this, where you know uh, a dozen or so. Soldiers with torches coming out to rescue. No, this was a this was a small army coming to get Jesus, and, and so add to that an unknown number of temple guards, temple police, those the the the, the um, officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, and you get some picture of what's transpiring here. Hundreds of armed soldiers coming to arrest one man, and, and now normally the Romans didn't have. This large garrison of troops in Jerusalem. They, that, uh, de- the detachment was normally stationed about 40 miles away in Caesarea. But it, when, there were, when there were times of Jewish feasts and festivals in Jerusalem, they would, they would bring in this detachment back into Jerusalem. They, they would normally just keep a few soldiers there, Roman soldiers there, to keep peace. But when there were hundreds of thousands of Jews streaming into Jerusalem at these feasts, and everything's just kind of this nationalistic pride and fever pitch, they came in, they brought all these Roman soldiers in as a show force to squelch any thought of riot or insurrection, and they could stamp it out right away, and and you have Pilate, who, who also normally lived in Caesarea, but he would come for a couple of weeks around these feasts to just maintain order. So these, this detachment would come, and they would live in Antonius Fortress, which is just looking over the temple grounds, right next to Pilate's headquarters, and keeping an eye on these Jewish people. Again, not the, you don't think Jewish authorities and Roman soldiers working together, but this is what we find here. It's that extreme of a situation, and so... So this this is the scene. So so long, but but again, long before this this entourage of soldiers gets to the place where Jesus is, he's and he's waiting for them. Jesus and his disciples they can hear them and they can see them. There's no surprise here. They're carrying torches and lanterns. They can see the glow as they make their way down the down the hillside, the eastern slope, and come across. The valley there. They they see the torches. They 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 they're armed, and so they're the swords clanging at their sides. They would they would hear them in that many footsteps on that rocky, on that rocky hillside. This was not some small stealth operation. This was a this was to be a shock and awe show of force to 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 just stun Jesus and his disciples, and and in case they were ready to fight or in case they wanted to incite some kind of riot, they were ready to squash it. And again. One of the things that we see is, 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 is Judas, I think what's clear is he thought this would be necessary. He thought it would be necessary. Now that tells us something about Judas. Is that it shows us how greatly he underestimated Jesus' power. As if that could be enough to stop him if Jesus wanted to retaliate or fight back. That This is the most futile assault ever staged in the history of the world. It's laughable. All the armies of the world could have assembled right there to take Jesus down. And if he wanted to resist or if he wanted to escape, 
no problem. It's not, there's not even a, it's not even a, it's not even a fair comparison. Oh, and as this small army, but, but what we see is this small army makes their way across that valley to get Jesus to arrest him and to bring him in. He could have, he could have done anything. He could have, he could have moved to another place where, where Judas wouldn't know he'd be. He has this divine police scanner and so he, he knows what's happening. And, and, and so he could, have, he could have gone somewhere else on the other side of the Mount of Olives and they would have had no clue. He could have slipped out the back of the garden ran away under the cover of, of night. He could have retreated back into the shadows. He could have hid behind the disciples, had them form a line of protection around him. But no. Instead he does the opposite. He courageously steps forward and gives himself up. Greets the soldiers who've come to arrest him by force and he says... Who are you looking for? Verse 4. Everyone in this scene, this is what I want you to see. Everyone in this scene is tense, is scared. Everyone except Jesus. He's calm. He's courageous. I mean, you can imagine how the fear gripped the eleven. It's this, it's this massive mob of, of armed soldiers with torches and lanterns is making their way toward them. And, and they're thinking, they've got to be thinking, this is it. This is the end. We're going to die here with Jesus tonight. You can imagine the fear of the soldiers. Judas has probably warned them about the power of Jesus. Why do we need so many soldiers to get this one guy? We'll see their reaction to two words that Jesus speaks in a moment, and it's sheer panic. So they're they're afraid. But against this backdrop of fear and tension and strain, we see Jesus' calmness. And it just stands out. His courage. He's not a stoic. He's not denying the reality of pain and evil and suffering and the hardships that he's facing here. That's, that's not it. Like he's just kind of able to mentally get above all of this. That's not it. Nobody's, he's, not, he's not unfeeling. No, he's feeling it all. He's, he's taking all of this in. He's absorbing all of the, the injustice, all of the agony that, that he's walking into now. He's, no, he's feeling it deeply, more deeply than we ever could. But what he's doing, he has this complete confidence in his father's power to take care of him and to see him through to the end. That's, that's where this calmness and courage comes from. It's not just, and it's not just that Jesus didn't run from this big, bad, scary group of soldiers. What's really stands out is that he didn't run from the cup. He didn't run from the cup. And the scene is, Jesus putting the cup to his lips and starting to drink. That's the first thing. We'll come back and make some application at the end. I, but the first thing that stands out is Jesus' Jesus's stunning courage. And it's displayed in the fact that he did not run. Second quality that really comes to the surface here is we see his total control. Pat was alluding to this earlier. His total control. Jesus took the wheel. That's an old, outdated pop reference right now. So, really, he never let go of it. He never, he never gave it up. He always had it. But he, he, he's in control. This is, this is a crazy and chaotic scene. And lots of things are changing rapidly. And it seems to be deteriorating quickly. But, but as the title suggests, it's controlled chaos. 
And Jesus is the one with the control. This Jesus isn't frantically trying to decide what to do next. Ah, uh, what do we do? And his, his environment is rapidly changing and he's trying to respond. Okay, what are we going to do now, guys? Uh, uh, let's, let's do this. Let me just go and surrender myself. No, that's not it at all. He's in charge. He's in control of, 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 of everything, of his arrest, of everything that follows. He's calmly calling the shots here. He's determining the timetable. He's determining the location. He's he's the one that's showing how this goes down. Yet in a way that doesn't disregard the will and the culpability of these men, these evil men. So Christ isn't a tragic victim of circumstances here. He's a good shepherd who's laying down his life for his sheep. Of his own volition. He's in control. How does, how does John show us Jesus' total control? We, we've, we've already seen this, but Jesus planned the place of His arrest. He, he chose a place that Judas knew well. It looks like Jesus is walking into this trap un, unknowingly. But that, that Judas has maybe outsmarted Jesus. He's one step ahead. He's, but what John says in verse 4, Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus knew what was going on. He, he chose the spot, he picked the timing, he arranged the vents, not caught off guard. He's not a passive victim. And we see his sovereign power in a very dramatic way. When the mob answers Jesus, Jesus' question, who are you seeking? They say, Jesus of Nazareth, verse 5. And Jesus responds with two simple words in the Greek language, ego eimi. I am ESV anyway, it, it includes, it adds the little word he, I am he. But it's just simply I am. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, if you've been with us through our study of John, you, you're familiar with this, this expression of Jesus. We, we've looked at several of these I am's of Jesus. I am the door, I am the vine, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good shepherd. And, and we've had several of these. I am, it's that sacred name for God in the Old Testament. When, in the book of Exodus, when, when God sends Moses to the people of Israel, Moses says, God, what do I, what do I say? Who do, who do I tell them has, has sent me to you, or has sent me to them? Who do, who do I say that you are? And God speaks to Moses and he says, go back and tell them, I am who I am. You, you tell them that, the, that, that I am has sent you. I am. No predicates, so you grammarians are flipping out here, and it's gotta, there's got to be some qualifier, there's got to be some limiting word there to add on to that statement. No, nothing. It's the language of infinity, just I am. I am. And, and back in John 8, Jesus told many of these same people, in a, in a very clear way, He said, before Abraham was born, the father of your faith, been dead for hundreds of years. Before Abraham was born, I am. And they understood what he was saying and what he was claiming there. They got it crystal clear because the very next verse says that they took up stones to kill him. They considered it blasphemy, a clear claim to, to deity. So when Jesus answers them here with these, these same two words, they're, they're literally bowled over by the power of Christ. These words, these big, burly, rough and tough Roman soldiers, they just fall down like dominoes. And Christ says, I am. 
They didn't lose their footing on the slippery hillside, as some ridiculous liberal Bible scholars have claimed. And so the first few fell, and then it just started knocking everybody else down. That's just dumb. No, they, they, they got a small taste of the power of Jesus. They'd, they'd never encountered anyone like Christ before. And they just fall down backwards. So who's in control now? Is it Judas? Is he the one calling the shots? Is it the religious authorities? Are they the ones that are that are writing the script here? Is it is it uh, the Roman soldiers? Is it the devil? No, it's Jesus. He's in total control. He's not helpless. He's pushing this thing forward. He's he's getting them back on track. He says, "Guys, get up. Who did you come to seek again?" I'm he, I'm the one, I'm the one you're looking for. He's just sticking his hands out. Take me. It's verse 7, they ask him again, whom do you seek? And so he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So Jesus in control. Now we have an interesting thing that enters in verse 10. Peter tries to take control of the situation. <laughs> He seems to think Jesus has lost it, lost control. He thinks the traitor and these soldiers now have the upper hand and, and he's got to do something. He's got to take matters into his own hands fast, his own incapable hands. Verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Now Peter probably had his hand on his dagger. I don't think long sword, something like that, but it was something like, it was a dagger, basically. Kind of what people would just carry for all kinds of use. Like we carry a pocket knife, they would carry these daggers. And probably as that mob drew close, he probably probably had his hand on it. And, and he probably thought, this is it. It's go time. It's time to fight. I promised the Lord I wouldn't deny Him, even if it, even if it meant my own death. Well, well, now I'm going to have an opportunity to show that. We're going to fight, even if it means we fight to the death. We're going to go down. We're going to go down swing. So he takes his knife out. He goes for the head of this guy, Malchus. And he's and he, he's not going for his ear. He's going for his head or neck, and and he misses. He's not trying to make him partially deaf. That wasn't his big ambition here. He's trying to kill the guy. But he's a fisherman. He's not a trained soldier. So he, he misses or the other guy is really quick and was able to duck and, and just lost his ear in the process. And Luke tells us that Jesus immediately put the guy's ear right back on. Healed him immediately. Now, it's interesting that John tells us his name, Malchus. Now, we don't know why John includes that information um, I, there's a, a many speculate, and I, I would kind of think this may be the case that Malchus may have ended up becoming a believer, and so as John writes his account, there are churches. There would be a church that would read this this Gospel of John and say, "We know, you know, you know Malchus. He's in your congregation. This is the guy. This is the one that had his ear taken off by Peter, and Jesus healed him. Maybe that that healing it." It got him thinking about who this Jesus is, and he trusted in Christ. That's somewhat speculation. We don't know for sure, but 
But he, but he, Jesus heals his ear, and 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 yet, what what did Peter? What does Peter show? His actions show that he still doesn't get it. He still doesn't get Jesus. He, he assumes Jesus is going to defend himself, but he's not. So Jesus rebukes him. Verse eleven. Jesus said to Peter, "Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me?" In other words, Peter, at the very end, you're doing it again. You're trying to take control. You're, 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 you're misrepresenting, you're misunderstanding everything. And, and you're rebuking me again, trying to take charge. You don't, you don't get it. Put it away. Do you not think I can defend myself, Peter? Do you, do, that I can't retaliate if I want to? Are you doubting and underestimating my ability again? In the Gospel of Matthew, this... Uh, Parallel passage in Matthew 26, verse 53. Jesus says, Do you not think, do you, or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? <laughs> Let me do the math where That's 72,000 angels. And we know from Old Testament history, there's one angel that wiped out an 185,000 soldier Assyrian army in one night. And so you can imagine what 72,000 angels could do. And so, but Peter, he's trying to regain the control that Jesus seems to have lost in his mind. And so, but Christ hasn't lost control. He's behind the wheel. He's purposely driving forward to the cross. That's that's what he has in sight. It's his cup that's that's compelling him. It's only after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension with the further aid and the understanding that the Holy Spirit will provide to Peter that, he, that the lights really come on for him. And so he's preaching on the day of Pentecost, his first really public sermon, and this evangelistic sermon. He's proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in that message he says that Christ suffered and died according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He eventually got it. Jesus was in control. I was the one that was out of control. Christ was in control. Should have trusted Him. Now listen, I think there's wonderful application for us. If Jesus was in control through His sufferings, we can be confident that He's in control through ours. That has not changed. And so, so I don't know what kind of situation you're in today. I know some of your situations, and there's a lot more that I don't know. And I don't know everything about whatever situation you are in. But you, you may feel like you're in the, between this rock and a hard place today, and you don't know what to do. You don't know what today holds, tomorrow holds, the next week holds. You may feel like you're just sitting alone in this tiny little sinking boat on the, in the midst of this raging sea with these waves and wind and just towering over you and you feel like you're just about to get wiped out. Maybe because of some relational conflict. Maybe because of financial difficulties or job loss or, or sickness or disease or, or some just distress and disappointment in your life. I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe, maybe you're here and you're facing temptations or problems that just seem too great to bear. But remember this. Get, see, see our Lord here. See our Lord against this backdrop of what seems like chaos. It seems like everything is out of control and spiraling and it's just, it's just, it's just manic. But our Lord is calm. He's in control. And He is for you today too. 
He's, he's a rock and he's a refuge in the midst of a storm. I'm not saying that, oh no, it's really not that bad and that there is no chaos. And No, there's chaos all around, but we have Christ who's in charge. We can cling to him and run to him, stay close to him and draw near to him and he will care for us. He's interceding for you right now. He's caring for you and he's preserving you. Since Jesus is Lord, even over His own suffering and His own death, we can trust Him both for our salvation and we can trust Him when we go through times of intense trials, including facing even our own death. Third quality that stands out of the Lord here, I'll accelerate these last two, is His extraordinary compassion. His extraordinary compassion. And it's seen in this fact that Jesus guarded His sheep. Jesus guarded His sheep. In the midst of all this confusion and chaos and the angry mob and the treacherous kiss from Judas and the falling soldiers and the flight of His disciples and the silly swordsmanship of Peter, the Lord never stopped caring for His disciples. He had them, He had us on His heart. Yes, ultimately Jesus' devotion to His Father, His obedience to the Father's will is what compelled Him to drink this cup to the dregs. But He also was motivated in an extraordinary way by love for His own. That's clear in this passage. When when He might have understandably, we, we could get it if He would have been been preoccupied with himself and concerned for himself in the face of the sufferings that he's walking through right now. Yet Jesus is eager to to make sure his followers are safe. Look back, we skipped over the end of verse 8 and verse 9. He says to this party that's come to arrest him, If you seek me, let these men go. Take me, leave them alone. This was to fulfill the word that that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have not, I have lost not one. That refers back to John seventeen twelve. We were just looking in Jesus' prayer for the disciples a few weeks ago, where Jesus spoke in this prayer, saying that he he guarded the disciples, he kept them, so that not one except Judas ended up perishing. And although the preservation in chapter 18, verse 9, that we're looking at right here, it has to do with keeping them from arrest and being killed with Jesus. But, it, but it's symbolic of Jesus keeping them spiritually. That's intended here. Even in the hour of His own greatest suffering and, and need, Jesus is thinking of others, thinking of those He loves. John, who's writing this Gospel account, he was there. He was there. He heard this. He saw this. He never got over it either. The, the Lord's protection, his, his keeping, His intervention to, to, to make sure that the disciples were untouched, that, that gives us hope, doesn't it? He cares for us. He keeps us. Having saved us, Jesus will keep us. We saw this very clearly in His prayer in John 17. It's, he keeps us not because of our uh, our weak grip on Him. He keeps us because of His powerful grip on us. He guards us. Even when we fail Him, even when we do stupid things like Peter does here, His promise still holds. His sheep will never, ever perish. He keeps us. 
And that brings us to the last quality that I want us to notice here. It's Jesus' singular concern. His singular concern. And his concern is the cup. He drank the cup. What was it that fueled his determination to, to stay and not to run away? What was it that, 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 that drove him to give himself up instead of retaliate, to, to be silent instead of rant and rave and, and, and scream and yell and make a scene? What was it? He, he knew what was coming, but why didn't he do any of those things? It was mostly the fact that his loving father, who was unspeakably dear to him, had, had placed this cup in his hands. It's a drink. Verse 11 again. Jesus said to Peter, Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? He just wasn't there to fight with the sword. He was there to die on a cross. He was there to drink the cup. And the cup which, Jesus, which the Father gave Jesus to drink, as we said earlier, was the cup of wrath for sin to drink the cup was to was to experience the terrible and awesome anger of God for sin because God is holy and just all sin must be punished the penalty of all sin must be paid and Jesus has paid it all we sing this Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left its crimson stain he washed it white as snow John John is, is, or Jesus is telling us here. This is, this is what's driving me. And John gives us another major clue to, to understand this driving concern of Christ. As he describes in verses 12 to 14 what happens after Jesus has been arrested. And, and, and we'll talk about this more next week. And Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas. And there's this, this go back and forth in these verses. But in verse 14, John adds this comment. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, Caiaphas didn't have a clue what he was saying when he says this. This is just some, some incidental detail, but this verse for us, it's like a neon sign. It's getting our attention. It's pointing into the purpose, to the, to the, to the uh, sovereign purpose of God in Christ's sufferings. Look right here. See this. See this. Don't miss this. It's, it, it, this little insignificant detail puts the whole scene into a right perspective here. It's expedient that one man should die for the people because it points to Jesus as sacrifice, as substitute, as our Savior. The phrase that one man should die for the people, it would be instantly recognizable to a Jewish reader as the language of atonement. Atoning sacrifice. This is the key to understanding the whole work of Christ. John the Baptist announces at the very beginning of Jesus' life, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and so we come now to the end of John's Gospel account and we're, we're, we see the fulfillment now. And this is coming to light that the death that Jesus was about to die was the death of a willing sacrifice making perfect atonement for sin and guilt of sinners like us. This was the singular driving concern of Jesus in the garden. This was the concern that brought him through the 30 years of obscurity and preparation in, in, in Nazareth. This was what directed the whole course of his three-year earthly ministry. This is, this is now the driving concern that's leading him into darkness and suffering instead of running away from it. It's this. 
singular concern. If there is to be reconciliation between holy God and sinful man, there has to be a perfect sacrifice. Jesus is the only one who qualifies to be that sacrifice. And so when he's arrested, he barely speaks a word. Not kicking and screaming, ranting and raving. Peter wrote later, when he's reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Isaiah foretold this long before Peter wrote that. He said, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. I, I wonder, was, was Isaiah 53 on the mind of our Lord? In this moment, suffering servant, substitutionary sacrifice. As I said in the beginning, this scene, in this scene, Jesus is everything that we're not, and He's everything that we need. This passage isn't there simply to show us the example of Jesus that we ought to follow. Be courageous like Jesus was courageous in the face of suffering. Be compassionate like Him. Be in control like Him. No, that's not the driving point. This is really showing us about Jesus, our substitute, stood in our place. As our substitute, Jesus was fearless and courageous so that you and I don't have to be afraid. Not now, not for eternity. He was in control. He was, he was a willing sacrifice for our sins so that we don't ever, ever have to wonder again if we have a willing Savior. We don't have to wonder if maybe I've done something that's beyond Jesus' willingness to forgive or, or to, 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 to save me. Consider, when you, when you begin to have those thoughts and questioning the willingness of Jesus, go back to the scene and say, no, He was willing. He was in control. He, this was His own volition. He's a willing Savior. He's not a helpless victim, but He's willingly allowing wicked men to bind Him and to, and to take Him and crucify Him because He's so desirous of sinners to trust in Him, to be saved by Him. And so if He was willing to suffer, and, and what He suffered, surely He is full of readiness to save anyone who will call upon His name today. So It doesn't matter what is going on in your life or what is in your past. You... Don't have to wonder whether the Lord's grace is great enough to save you and to meet you where you're at. It is. You have a willing Savior. Also, and we see Him as our substitute, that He suffered unjustly so that we could be counted as righteous. Also, He was put in chains so that we could be free. Free from power of death, free from judgment, free from guilt, free from bondage, free from enslavement to sin, even as believers, addictions, fear, anger, unforgiveness, bitterness, lust, jealousy, love of money, on and on. See Romans chapter 6 and see the connection here. And finally, Jesus suffered alone. So that you 
and I would never have to be alone. We are not left alone. We are never left without a mediator. And, and this, is, this is in the wisdom of God. This is why it's so important that, that when it came to the cross, he's alone. It's not like the disciples are there hanging with him and so that we could say, you know what? Yes, Jesus is a mediator between God and man, but we also have the apostles. We could go through them. We also have Mary. We also have some saints that have gone before us. No, there is only one. There is only one who saves. There is only one who endured it. There was only one who qualified. And it's Jesus Christ. There is salvation in no other name. There is hope in no other one save Jesus Christ. But we need no other one. Jesus alone. Jesus period. Let's pray. Father, I, I pray that you would it's just a scene that we've considered now and Ah, that it would, it would continue to resonate through our minds throughout this day as we're, as we're thinking of the sacrifice, the, the noble and honorable sacrifice of men and women in the, in the preservation and protection of this country under your authority, God. God, that's, that, that just gives us a touch point for us to really consider the, the sacrifice of our Lord, the substitutionary death in our place, sufferings that he endured to give us life and liberty for eternity. So may, may this, these truths and this, this, these, these uh, qualities of Jesus Christ just continue to bounce around in our minds and that they would really begin to stick in our hearts and that, that we, would, we would be drawn to love Christ more, to trust Him more, to hope in Him more, to find ourselves more and more dependent upon Him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.